Hello, and welcome to Conference Room C, where the culture meets. I'm your host, Dr. A, and today is an intro to Working While Black. When it comes to working while Black in America, young Black professionals have a unique existence. We are the children or grandchildren of civil rights activists and survivors. We are the realization of stepping into careers, spaces, and opportunities that we were kept from for so long. We have this can-do and you better not tell me I can't attitude. But as professionals, we also encounter an institution that has been embedded in the fabric of American culture and some other cultures around the world. A work institution that all too often devalues what some brings to the table while overvaluing others. An institution that was formed way before our parents were even born and way before their parents were even born. Enter the concept of working while Black. Though we have made some strides regarding workplace equality, I believe that in general, the work experiences of Black professionals are still qualitatively different than their counterparts. Yes, over time, with the emergence of more racially, ethnically, and culturally diverse workspaces, we've seen progress. The introduction of anti-discrimination legislation, such as the Civil Rights Act, was a win, for example. But as with any legislation, its effectiveness depends very heavily on its implementation. If an organization's approach to protecting historically marginalized groups is solely that they, the organization, will comply with legal mandates, then that leaves a lot to be interpreted regarding the right and wrong ways of treating employees of protected classes. In other words, legal remedies can be elusive when there are institutionalized oppressive norms within an organization. The goal of every organization should be to go way beyond what is required legally in terms of the treatment of protected classes and truly foster environments of inclusion where there is equal access to power and social networks and an appreciation of the value each person brings. Until this is the goal of every organization, we, Black professionals, will have to cope with the effects of working while Black. So what is working while Black exactly? In my view, as a 34-year-old Black professional, it really encompasses three aspects. One, working while Black is dealing with the socio-historical backdrop of Blacks in the workplace, including having jobs that were not traditionally held by Black folks, then having to encounter or counter the ideal worker image in which the white male has historically been viewed as the ideal employee, a notion that lingers in the minds of some. Two, working while Black is dealing with interactions in the workplace that occur because we're young and Black. We'll get into examples of these interactions a bit later. And three, working while Black is dealing with present day socio-political context that influence how we view the workspace and how we are viewed in the workspace. For example, the influence of movements like Black Lives Matter or the election of the first Black president on us at work. Whew, this is getting deep already. And it's time to go even deeper. With me in the conference room today, I have two bright stars ready to tackle all things working while Black. First, we have Dana Dixon. Dana is a licensed clinical social worker based in Norfolk, Virginia. She holds a Bachelor's in Human Development and Family Studies from the Pennsylvania State University. Woohoo! We are. <laughs> she went on to earn a Master's in Social Work with a clinical concentration from Norfolk State University. With 13 years of experience in her field, Dana now practices independently as a mental health therapist and as a school social worker. Just over a year ago, she opened her own private wellness agency, Enamor Mental Health and Wellness, LLC, where she provides individual, couples, and family counseling. Finally, and most importantly, Dana is a wife, mother of three, and proud Black Catholic. She is called by God to the profession and inspired by faith to serve others. Dana, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Amina. We also have Dr. Don Trahan. Hopefully I pronounced that right. <laughs> Dr. Trahan is a licensed professional counselor, national certified counselor, approved clinical supervisor, a professor of counseling, and an international consultant. He is recognized as one of the top 100 global leaders in diversity, equity, and inclusion change management. Dr. Trahan is a devoted advocate of social justice and educational equity, and he dedicates a significant amount of time to mentoring 
and community-based activities. He holds a BA in psychology and an MA in clinical psychology from Texas A&M University at Corpus Christi, an MA in educational leadership, and a PhD in counselor education from the University of New Mexico. He is currently back in school, if you can believe it, pursuing a doctor of business administration from the University of Maryland Global Campus. Dr. Don, how are you today? Thanks for joining us in the conference room. I'm doing well, and I'm honored to be here, and thank you for having me. We're about to get into it. This is a heavy topic, obviously. So, of course, we had to bring out the big guns. But I think it's important on this show that we name things as they are. So I really want to have a discussion around some concepts that listeners may or may not be familiar with as far as the technical term or the technical definitions, but maybe they've experienced at some point in their career. We'll make these concepts real by sharing our own experiences, thoughts on how they may play out in the workspace and how we can manage if we encounter them. In my research, I found several concepts that seem relevant to Black professionals' experiences working, but realized that today we're only scratching the surface. So I'm just going to start with one of the common ones I found in the research, and that is marginalization, which is defined as the treatment of a person, group, or concept as insignificant or peripheral. And when I think of marginalization or marginalizing interactions in the workplace, I think of, as a young Black professional, being in a situation where I'm not asked my opinion on certain matters when decisions are being made. I'm overlooked for certain opportunities when they come up because it's assumed that I wouldn't have the knowledge or the skills to be able to complete that opportunity. Dr. Don, how have you seen this concept of marginalization play out in your experience? So it's interesting. Very often, as I I think about my career, it hasn't necessarily been race-related. It's been my age that has really played a, a massive part in that. And to put that into context, I went straight through school. So I obtained my PhD when I was 27 years old. And as a result, it put me in a position to kind of begin my career, as I call it, at the top. And as a result, in many cases, I've been working with individuals who are significantly older than I am. And that has been a challenge where it's a matter of even to the point of people to say, oh, he's just a baby. How would he know this? Or how would he know that? Challenging in some regard, the intellectual ability that I have. And then in some cases, even educationally to question the way in which I obtained my degree. So it's been something where you almost feel like you have to put on in order to make sure that people not only respect you, because I think that's very important, but that your voice is heard. I think that's so critical. It can be very taxing and somewhat overwhelming because you get to a point where you are tired of that and you don't want to necessarily have to prove, if you will, to someone what you bring to the table. But it's been my age in most cases I've faced thus far. It's been something that as I reflect on it, It is truly draining because you walk into spaces where it's like, okay, am I going to have to deal with this again today? And then in some cases, it's very clear that it's because you're the only Black person in a space that is traditionally not seen with people who look like us. And so that then, when you think about that from a a double perspective, or the true essence of what intersectionality is really getting at, it's like, okay, here we go again. Now yet another factor that I'm having to deal with. And Dr. Don, just to follow up, because I think it's so interesting, and I have this conversation with people a lot, like, what is it, especially as a Black woman and being young, what is it about my identity that people are reacting to? Is it the fact that I'm a person of color? Is it my age? Is it the fact that I'm a woman? So what was it about the content of your experiences that leads you to say confidently that it's been your age in most circumstances? On a visual level, for some regards, it's been very clear that I'm the youngest person in those spaces. And because I've held leadership positions from day one, that has been one of the things that when I walk in the space, it's no question that, well, how old is he? Even to the point I had early in my career, someone to ask me if I would grow my facial hair out (laughs) older. And I thought that was quite interesting. Like right when I finished school early in my career, I had someone to ask me, you know, could you do that so that you'll look older? To which I said, absolutely not. It's funny now that I have my facial hair. But back then, it wasn't something that I was going to do because someone else was asking me to do it. 
I'm very, very confident that it has been in reference to me being the youngest person in spaces. And because I am very vocal and I have no problem calling things out and calling people in, I don't believe in calling people out, but I am very transparent about what needs to take place. That's part of, I think, what has led to a lot of the success that I've had thus far. But in that, it's been very evident that I'm the youngest person in those spaces. So it is. It's something that I've grown accustomed to now. And now that I'm a little older, I know how to deal with it better. However, it's still something that comes up, especially once again, because of the caliber of positions that I have pursued thus far. It's typically people wondering, you know, I'll put it in this way. They'll see my CV. And then when I walk in, it's like, that's him? Facial or nonverbal communication is just as powerful, if not more powerful. I've grown to see that very often it's a combination of age as well as race. Before I bring Dana in, I just want to share a quick anecdote of my own. And this just really hits home for me. I was in a leadership group about two years ago. And I remember at the time, my, my hair is red now, but at the time it was my natural light brown color. And I remember complaining about my gray hair coming in. And I had someone in my class ask me, are you leaving your hair gray so that people will perceive that you're older? I'm like, no, I'm leaving my hair gray because I don't know what to do with it yet. I'm <laughs> now. And I told him, I was like, I've been having gray hair since I was 25. So at this point, gray is gray. No one's going to think I'm older just to have gray hair. So Dana, in your experiences with marginalization or marginalizing interactions, or maybe in your work with others, how can people kind of get over or, or counter or cope with maybe being in these situations where they're treated as insignificant in the workplace, a place where, you know, they're there to give their knowledge and they feel like they were hired to give input on situations. I would like to start with the fact that every work space is different. And so sometimes, like when Dr. Don mentioned his age, in my space, it's about being a woman. And so you kind of first need to your workspace and your field and kind of get a lay of the land because how you cope, I think, is going to depend on that as well as your own personality and your own strengths and weaknesses. That's part two, which is if I want to move up into a leadership role and I'm not feeling recognized because I'm a woman or because I'm Black or because I'm young, I have to walk in with confidence. So I'm coping and I'm getting over that hump by improving my self-esteem and just pumping myself up, you know, self-empowerment. And so how I do that is going to be different than how Dr. Don would or how you would. But specifically, speaking of mental health, self-care improves our self-esteem. I hesitate to say that you have to have a specific type of self-care strategy like meditation, but that's kind of my favorite having that quiet space alone to really connect with yourself and connect to whatever higher power you believe in, if you believe in that. And so self-care strategies, um, mindfulness strategies, and we can get into those details as well, if you'd like being aware of the here and now, both what's going on internally as well as externally is going to be pretty important. So you said, how do you cope and how do you get over when you feel insignificant? And that's why I went to self-esteem, because you want to feel significant as opposed to insignificant. Does that answer your question? It does. And I appreciate that comment because in my dissertation research of Black women executives in the federal government, one of my findings was that majority of them really pulled on their connection to their cultural identity to boost their self-esteem. So I remember one of my participants clearly saying, you know, my ancestors got through this, that, and the other. So I know I can too. So I definitely think self-empowerment and that confidence that you can get through anything can't be overstated. So let's move on to stereotypes. I think stereotyping is probably one of the most common concepts that our listeners may be familiar with. So just in general, it's the act of generalizing a particular group of people that belong to the same social group. So sometimes Stereotypes, often they're used to make decisions about an individual without actually verifying that it's true or knowing that individual. And I think what's important is 
to this discussion is understanding all the different dimensions that one can be stereotyped. As Dr. Don mentioned earlier, intersectionality, we all have these multiple identities just by looking at us. No one knows really which identities are most important to you. But by looking at you, a person will automatically place you into a social group. And that can be based on your race. It can be based on your age. It can be based on your gender. Or if you don't conform, it can be based on that. If you practice a religion that has maybe some outward appearance associated with it, you can be stereotyped based on that. So I'm not sure. Because stereotyping is really on the other person, I'm not sure that there's much that I could do to determine how someone stereotypes me. However, I do feel like this goes on in the workplace all the time. It's similar to the marginalization. Decisions that are made based on these stereotypes cause people to be left out of certain groups or certain decisions. Dr. Don, is stereotyping still occurring in organizations or have we become better at getting away from grouping people together? (laughs) I wish I could say that we've gotten better. Unfortunately, we have not. I think that in many cases, people's first interactions are guided by stereotypes. To put that in context, if you don't know someone and you see them and all you have to go on is either what you think you know about them or what you're seeing in a brief moment of time, then you're going to stereotype them. It's just the way the human brain works. The problem with that is that if you're guided by a stereotype, you're less likely to be able to get to know someone for who they are. Or unfortunately, if they fulfill what you felt or what you stereotype them with, then all that does is make it worse for that person and your opportunity to engage that person. So I wish I could say that we've gotten away from that, but I I see it all the time. I'll give you an example recently. I'll use my bio for an example. Very often people will hear all of that and they'll make an assumption about the type of person that I'm going to be. And I had someone tell me they thought I was going to be a know-it-all and I just laughed. I said, you know, I'm one of the most down-to-earth people. I happen to be highly educated, but I'm very down-to-earth and I don't take that to heart where, oh, I'm Dr. Dunn. It's like, no, I just happen to be highly educated and I'm invested in my work. But if you don't get to know me and you hear that and then you see, because with that comes confidence. I know I've been taken the wrong way in many, many cases to which I, I've had to learn. And it's similar to what Dana had mentioned. I will never apologize for being successful. And I will also never apologize or feel that I have to put on for someone because of what they perceive because of their stereotypes. That's something I have directly dealt with. It's also something that I've seen with people. And unfortunately, in the workplace, that can lead to clicks. It could also lead to people lacking opportunities to excel simply because they think they know something about someone that they don't. What you were just saying, Dr. Don, reminded me of my own experiences. And I think it's important to note that we stereotype each other. We're going to be grouped anyway by the dominant culture in the workplace. So it's just important that we don't put that extra stress on each other as well, because it's just more divisiveness when it's not necessary. Dana, what do you have to say about all this? I know I just said a mouthful. (laughs) No, you both brought in some really important points and it kind of piggybacks off of what you said in regards to cultural identity. We identify with those things because that's where we get it. It starts at home. It goes back to where you come from, your personal identity, your cultural identity. It's developed by having a family by where that family lives and the cultural practices of that family. And so oftentimes stereotyping comes from that lack of knowledge. We really, as a minority community, but also as a collective society, need to break those barriers down, find commonalities, change negative thinking patterns, and educate others. I really think it's important that we don't be afraid to have difficult conversations. And I'm considered confrontational at times. So people may not agree with me, but we shouldn't be afraid to have uncomfortable conversations, especially with people that we spend so much time with, i.e. coworkers. So there's a way to go about doing that. I don't agree you should sit around the conference room table and open up a political debate. Unless it's this conference room. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. 
But we do need to not be afraid to approach those difficult subjects, but do it based on the idea that we want to learn and we want to grow from the conversation and find those similarities in each other. I was just talking about it yesterday because I was doing an assessment for a teacher in the same division that I work for. And she is very different from me in a lot of ways, from a very different cultural perspective, different background. And I wanted to know so many things. And because she was someone that I got along with well in the division, I felt like she's somebody that I could approach and ask these questions and have this conversation with. But I was afraid to because she worked in the division with me. And we can't be afraid to do that. And last but not least, we are not monolithic. Like we are so different. One of the ways that I've learned that you find that out is by your college experiences, especially if you go to an HBCU, then you really see how different Black people are. And so we need to respect the fact that we're all different. We can't come in with preconceived notions about each other because we're all so different. I just wanted to harp on that growth mindset, like just really being dedicated to understanding other people as individuals and other cultures and whatnot. Now, the next concept I want to get into is one I get a lot of questions about in my work and since I've announced the launch of this show, and that's microaggressions. That's defined as the verbal, behavioral, or environmental treatment that communicates a devaluation of an individual's contributions. I wanted to be sure to get to this one because the result, or I should say conference room C as an idea, as a podcast was thought of because of a story I heard that I feel really centered around microaggression. To make a long story short, it was basically a situation in which one of my research participants was headed to a meeting. She was kind of new to an organization, the only person of color. She was headed to a meeting and she got there and she was the only one not at the right room. So the room had actually been changed behind her back per se. It wasn't until she talked to some people and found the other room that she was in the right location. And she just remembers thinking to herself, like, was this done on purpose? Was this just a coincidence? She felt isolated and not that she really had anyone to talk about the situation to kind of bounce the idea off of them about whether... It was a microaggression. So Dr. Don, I know you do a lot of work in organizations and in your experiences, how do you deal with or consult others on what to do with these interactions and experiences they have where they're not sure whether it is microaggression or not? So the first thing that I tell people is to acknowledge if someone has shared with you that you have had a microaggressive moment or engagement with them, You have to own that. And I always say it doesn't matter what your intention was. If it has impacted someone in a particular way, then that's the reality. I also have told people, especially because what you run into in the workplace, and I try to avoid this, especially because of my work, you don't want to isolate people to feel that, well, now I can't say anything or I have to walk on eggshells because if I say something, it's going to cause someone to get angry. I said, make the mistake. Make the mistake in terms of if you say something because you genuinely don't know, because ignorance is real. I know we're scholars and we get all of this behind us and we forget sometimes that not everybody lives in that space with us. So it's very, very easy to forget. Some people are just ignorant. They don't know any better. And so they ask stupid questions. And I hate to say it that way, but I want to be real. They ask stupid questions or they say things that it's like, did you really just say that? And sometimes what I've done is I'll even repeat the question back to them to let them realize how stupid it was. And I say that genuinely because I do believe that sometimes people, they ask and say stupid things, but they don't know any better. Right. And there are those cases where they very well clearly know what they're doing. And so I think you have to acknowledge that. When someone says that you've done this or you are now, especially if it's a micro assault or a micro insult, either way, It's creating a dynamic where now you are not only focusing on my race or whatever identity you're focusing on, you're now insulting or you're you're using aggressive type of behavior towards me. And I'll give you one similar to the story that you just told. I'll never forget this because it's the first time of 
many that I said, wow, I cannot believe this just happened, but it was a reminder, get ready for what you're going to encounter. I was in a meeting, only African-American person there, of a leadership meeting. And when I got there, there were six of us total. And everyone was greeted. The president walks in and says hello to everyone. When she got to me, she said, what's up? And I thought that was so interesting. (laughs) And it's something that I'll never forget because I pay attention to things like that. And I said, hello will be just fine. And when I introduced myself, then it changed the dynamic. My problem with that is that it should not have mattered that I'm Dr. Trahan in the space just out of respect. If you said hello to everyone else, why are you switching unless you're doing it because you think, oh, he's black, so let me say this to him. Uh, And I've had so many things to happen, but what I have said, and I think it's important to note this, some people, they really want to ask questions and they don't know. And I've, I've shared with audiences that there's a difference from you genuinely are invested in learning about the person so that you can work with them, understand them, and move forward together and being nosy. And if you're being nosy to validate a stereotype, that's different. But if it's truly that, you know, I'd like to know this because I'm curious and I'm interested in you, I think it's okay. But at the same time, I've told people, make the mistake. If you say something that offends someone or you say something that someone gives you the side eye, they will let you know a pretty easy what you've done to them or, or how they felt about it. The objective is to learn from that so that you don't continue making the same mistakes. It's so important to be open to not being perfect all the time, interactions with each other. And I just love these stories you're telling because it just reminds me of some of the common experiences we've all had. Most recently, I was welcoming a new employee. You know, I went over to her office and I said, you know, welcome to the office. You can find this here, that there. I'm right across the hall if you need anything. And she goes, all right, I'll holla. And I'm looking at her like, at what point (laughs) did you get from me that I use that type of language? Now, I do. However, I wasn't talking to you like that. So what made you feel comfortable to address me in that way? I just very clearly said, excuse me? (laughs) Like I looked at her and I acted like I was very confused, even though I knew exactly what she was doing. And then she said, oh, oh, I'll holla, but I'll come. I'll let you know if I need anything. Okay, that's all you had to say from the beginning. So I just think that using, and I don't want to say like using our cultural identity against us, because I really don't think she meant any harm, but taking the limited knowledge of one's collective cultural identity and using it to try to make a connection with them, instead of just giving them back what they give you, I think is one of the most common forms of microaggression. I want to bring in Dana. Obviously, there's some overlap between these (laughs) that we've been discussing. The first thing that Dr. Don said was own it. And I think that that's a huge piece to managing our mental health and managing our workspaces is we cannot keep our emotions bottled up. We can't isolate ourselves. We can't assume that it'll just go away if we ignore it or stuff it underneath a pillow. We actually have to address it. And that starts with acknowledging how we feel, what it is that we feel, why we feel that way, and then advocating for ourselves by expressing it respectfully and in a healthy way. And then the second thing that came up for me underneath what you all were saying was this idea of implicit bias and unconscious bias. And we all have these things. It's incredibly important to be self-aware so that you know where you kind of fall with certain subjects and with certain different types of people. And we often don't know what that is. And so I try to meet people where they are, both professionally, but also with colleagues as a clinician, as a therapist, and then also with colleagues that I work alongside. I don't assume that they know more than what they've demonstrated to me that they know. I don't assume that they know less either. I respect the fact that they may not know that they're demonstrating these microaggressive behaviors. And I try to remember that sometimes certain people overdo it in an effort to do it right or or to be correct. And so they're curious or they're interested or they want to come across as, I'm definitely not like those others. And so they work a little too hard and they say things like, what's up to the only Black educated PhD male in the room. And 
it's unfair, but then that's when you take the time to own how you feel, express it and address it head on. Because if you don't, then you'll either be succumbing to some stereotype or making it okay for them to do it to someone else and contributing to the other subjects that you've already brought up, which is marginalization. Mm -hmm. Thank you for bringing up the concepts of implicit bias and unconscious bias. While I personally have my own, (laughs) I won't say issues, but you know, my own feelings related to those concepts, because I think sometimes folks, kind of as Dr. Don alluded to earlier, sometimes people know what they're doing and, you know, they can kind of cling on to these terms as a clutch. However, I do feel like for people that are really willing to understand their own biases and their belief on certain things, understanding these concepts and doing some of the activities associated with them could be really, really useful. So the last two concepts, I have a feeling that this conversation (laughs) is going to be hefty. So the last two kind of terms I wanted to cover before we shift the conversation are related. So they are power and balance. This is the idea that Traditionally, marginalized groups are often underrepresented in positions of power within organizations. And also tokenism, which I've been asked a lot about. Well, I've been ranted to a lot about. Tokenism is the practice of doing something such as hiring a person who belongs to a minority group only to prevent criticism and give the appearance that people are being treated fairly. Dr. Don, in organizations... And I think this is similar to my previous question, but we know that in certain types of organizations and certain career fields, it's still unlikely to see many Black faces at the top levels of leadership, like the C-suite and higher. And then we do have this idea of maybe people seeing one Black face up there and thinking, oh, they're only up there because they're Black. So how is this playing out currently in organizations? It's one of the challenges that, especially with this movement of diversity and inclusion. And I I find it interesting. Obviously, that's my line of work. But I have been very, very transparent and adamant about challenging organizations on what's your status with privilege. And I ask that because when we talk about inclusion, are we really talking about the state or act of being included or are we talking about butts and seats? And if we're talking about butts and seats, then that's great PR, but we're not talking about inclusivity or, or creating an organizational culture that's welcoming and, and creates a sense of belonging so that you're not the only one used in that way. I think that when that happens, and it is unfortunately, but it's very, very common, especially in corporate America, academia as well, you see this movement of, well, let's make sure we get some diverse talent, which is another way of saying, let's get someone who's Typically, someone who's black is is what I've noticed. I mean, then, of course, there are those cases where you can deviate a little bit and you find other ways of defining diversity. But typically, I've seen it, let's get someone who's black. So the problem with that then is that you have these individuals who are there, but they don't feel a sense of belonging. So you have a temporary opportunity, but you don't have retention. Means that you're not creating and cultivating an environment that people feel that their voices matter. In some cases, and I've seen it, as I shared in my opening, I'm I'm very transparent about this, is that if you have a seat at the table with no voice at the table, you're wasting time. And one of the things that I've challenged CEOs and presidents of organizations when they brought me in as a consultant, is I've asked them, what's your status with privilege and how committed are you to understanding what you need to do with inclusion or what you're prepared to do with inclusion? And very often, it's the idea to do just that. It is the tokenism. It is, let's fill this quota, but there's no time, there's no commitment, there's no true investment in that person, typically. Now, there are some cases, obviously, that you really do see organizations invested in growing their diverse talent. But in many cases, what I personally witnessed is that it's for show, it's for great PR, it's a way to get on the bandwagon of diversity and inclusion but there is no true essence committed to creating an environment that's inclusive. And then equity comes into play. And so I've seen this, and I think it's really one of the worst out of everything because you get people, Dana, you've already alluded to this, it can create a toxic environment and it can really be draining on one's mental health as a result when you're treading, going to that space. A colleague of mine said years ago, you have to leave it at the door. And what she was getting at is I have to perform 
the entire time because at any given moment, if I don't perform, then I know I'll be the first person to go. So that type of stress to be in those spaces is really ridiculous. But unfortunately, it happens more often than what we realize and acknowledge. And I'm often mindful of when you have those individuals who are in those C-suite positions or cabinet level positions, depending on the, the, the organization, of how do we keep them there so that they have what they need to also create and pay it forward for other individuals to also assume similar roles. But I think we, and I, I said this before, you know, in 2019, we're heading into 2020. Uh, we're not in a post-racial society. We never have been. And I don't think we ever will be, unfortunately. And as a result, that means that we're going to continue to operate, really, unfortunately, from this black and white perspective. And so then you have these spaces that are typically white male dominated. And then you bring in uh, black women. And in very cases, I've seen that because you all, you have it together. I love it. I love seeing you just do your thing. I've seen that. Or you'll have a black male that comes in these places, but it's an intimidation factor or a space where he and or she and or they are not able to navigate the way that I think they should be because of that. So a long-winded way of saying that, as you can see, I'm very passionate about this uh, because it's something that has tremendously bothered me. And I've seen it in so, so many different cases, especially as a professional myself in these types of positions, as well as as a consultant all over the world. And I wish I could say it was just the U.S. Unfortunately, it's not. We, this happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. Dr. Don, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. And I also see this occurrence of power imbalances in organizations and just trying to get butts in seats and not really creating an inclusive environment as one of the major or the most major issues And we're actually dedicating a whole episode of Conference Room C to Leading While Black that will air after this one just to talk about these issues, specifically the glass cliff, which I'm sure you're familiar with, these leadership levels as a Black person. But you have to be so careful because you make one mistake, you're pushed off a cliff never to be able to climb back up again, or the glass ceiling, the notion that you can only go, but so high up in an organization. So it's just so important that we have these conversations. And you're right. I mean, on another episode, we had someone from Germany sharing their experiences of working while Black over there. And in the Leading While Black episode, we'll have someone from Canada. This is really a global challenge. And I think it's important that people realize this. Dana, so I have this conversation all the time with my friends because, you know, bosses surround themselves with bosses. So we're all like in this position of climbing so-called ladder, trying to make moves in whatever way that means for our different professions. And some of my friends are like, you know, I'm going to stick it out and, you know, I have to be the representative. And some are just like, I'm leaving. I'm going to an organization where there's more Black people, where it seems like they, you know, have more value for Black people. What advice do you usually give to people in these organizations where they may feel like there's no way they're going to get up the ladder or it's just going to be 10 times harder for them. Do they leave? Do they stay? You said it. Some people say, this is not for me or I don't want this responsibility. And so they leave and other people want to change from within, grow. And and some people take a hybrid of the two and say, I'm going to take what I can and then I'm going to start something and build and own my own and be able to give back that way. I think it's important to just be your authentic self. And when we talk about privilege, which Dr. Don mentioned, we have to remember that it is a privilege to be your authentic self in the workspace. And many minority Black professionals cannot be their authentic self in the workspace. And so that means they have to find ways to relieve the stress that they incur from having to be careful and tiptoe and feel boxed in and meet the standard or the norm that's set by whatever space they work in. One of the strategies that I use as a therapist, but it has caused me to excel in every workspace, is building quality relationships with people. It's my greatest asset as a therapist and as a professional. So when I'm talking to people, I'm me. I'm allowing them to be who they are, and I'm, I'm letting whatever that is be okay. 
But when you're in those corporate structures or you're trying to climb a corporate ladder and you feel like you have to censor certain things or be careful, you need to relieve that stress outside of work if you're going to take care of yourself and take care of your mental health. And lastly, I would say, just as professionals in general, you have to dress for the position that you want, not for the position that you have. And so sometimes that requires challenging your own thinking and some of your own behaviors to see, is this really going to get me where I want to be? Is this going to help me achieve the goals that I have for myself? In all of that, if you're not being you, you're going to be unhappy. So relieve stress when you feel like you have to contain your Ebonics or whatever slang you use, but then also use your opportunity in that workspace to grow. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And I think authenticity is a big conversation right now amongst professionals, especially those of historically marginalized populations. Actually, I'm planning for that to be a whole episode on its own, but we can get more into it in a few minutes. I wanted to switch or shift the conversation a little bit. In my view, another major part of working while Black is how we choose to show up at work and how we are perceived at work in the context of society. After Obama won the presidency, non-people of color at work were congratulating me as if I had won. Yet, after the Charlottesville, Virginia riots instigated by racist groups, those same coworkers avoided me like the plague. I know everyone was talking about it because we're in such close proximity to Charlottesville. But silence. Then it hit me. Perhaps I've been pegged as the opinionated young Black woman, likely liberal-leaning, who you can approach with, quote, good Black news, unquote, but need to avoid if you feel she's upset. I'm not mad at this, but I did wonder for a while if I let too much of my cultural identity that is largely shaped by society and current events into the workplace. I feel like this is a question that a lot of young Black professionals have asked themselves at some point. And sometimes it does feel like a juggling act between two worlds. So I'll start with Dr. Don. I feel like I know the answer to this, but is there a negative psychological cost to this juggling of two so-called worlds? My instinct says yes, but what say you? I say yes. I think that it puts you in a position where you can't just be. And if you're performing all the time, and I'll use microaggression as an example, the day that you reach that point where I'm tired of having to perform, you may get the other side of me, which is just my authentic self. So I think that it's definitely, it's a juggling and really unhealthy way to be, be where you're consistently having to figure out, well, I know I want whatever it is that you're asking and, and wanting to maintain, but then it's like, well, what do I have to do in order to get it? And mm-hmm. so that part, I think it's, it's truly a consistent juggle. It's a consistent mentally draining experience. And, and oftentimes when you get that, whatever it is that you're trying to hold or have, you realize it wasn't even worth it at all, especially if your health is declining as a result. I've seen that happened far too often. I'm guilty of it myself. You know, I acknowledge that. But I've been in situations where it's like, there's no job, there's no amount of money that's worth my, my mental health and just my health in general. But I had to get to that point. I would be naive to say, even going through the, the doctoral process, that was one of those times where it's like, I really, you know, it wasn't just a negative process, but it was a situation where I really was juggling because I I wanted that degree so bad. Now on the back end, or as I'm continuing to go, I realize it's like, yeah, you have to get to a situation where you're not doing that because it'll kill you. I mean, it really will. I remember I, I was in an environment where I was juggling it so bad. When I would go home, I was just like, why am I here? And I realized that I got to walk away from here. And it, it was hard. I, and I wrote about this some time ago. I made a decision, walked away from a six-figure salary. And I was like, Lord, how am I going to? Because I got accustomed to doing things a certain way. But I was like, I just can't. And God blessed me on the end. You know, I followed what I needed to do, stepped out there on faith and really allowed myself to do that. And it ended up opening up other doors that I could not have even imagined. But that environment to date was one of the most toxic experiences I've ever had. But I was in this juggling state primarily because I was like, well, I want the lifestyle. I want this money. I realized that juggling process 
was unhealthy. The irony of it, and I, I find that to be so complexing or a complex rather, but at the same time common, we as mental health professionals, we tell everybody else what to do so easy. But then sometimes when it's us, we find ourselves really challenged to realize and to be able to step away from things like that. But now I'm at the point where I don't care what it is. I will not allow myself to continue to be in that state of juggling because I just can't. I can't. And I realize what it was doing to me physically and mentally. But once again, long answer, but yes, it is still happening. And I think so many people find themselves in that situation trying to figure out where's my breaking point, if you will. That's such a wonderful story, Dr. Don. Good for you. May we all be so brave. And I just know that when people hear this, they're just going to feel validated because I hear stories like this all the time. They ask me, you know, am I tripping or is this really a toxic environment for me? Is it affecting my mental and physical health? And the answer is a resounding yes. And I'm glad people will be able to identify with that. Dana, as you alluded to a bit earlier, a lot of this comes down to deciding when and how to bring your true self to work. When you have someone, maybe as Dr. Don said, didn't always bring their true self to work, but they decided, okay, I'm tired of performing. I just don't, I can't anymore. What do you tell them as far as starting to bring their true self or that identity, their true identity to the workplace? If you're at a point where you're saying, I can't do this anymore, that's whatever is going on inside of you coming out. So you have to acknowledge it and own it and say, this is how I'm feeling and this is not what I want. So now let's make a plan. And what do I want? When Dr. Don said he walked away from a six-figure salary and was able to come into so many other opportunities and blessings from that, that speaks to do what you love and the money will follow. And so I think oftentimes because of going back to your opening, the institutions that we live in and the generational wealth divide and all of the things that have been put in place long before young Black professionals were even born, we push for the right salary to be able to achieve what white America has told us is the dream, the house, the cars, and the investment accounts, and the eventual retirement plan, and the country club membership. But we have to really challenge what it means to be Black in America, what is important to us, and what we want to see from that. So me and my husband go back and forth all the time because we struggle. Like, do we want to live in the hood that's getting gentrified by a house there so that young Black professionals are living in the neighborhood and it stays Black? Or do we want to buy the really nice house with the really good school district and then we feel like we can't be ourselves because, you know, we live next door to people that we don't identify with? We really have to challenge some of those norms. But I say, do what you love and the money will follow. Something else Dr. Don said that I think is really important here is Ask yourself, and I got this from a devotional, so I won't claim it as mine, but ask yourself, what will it cost? What am I willing to give? And is it worth it? Because what we truly want does require some sacrifice. And so when you're talking about the negative psychological cost, do you want to sacrifice your mental health and your wellness and your overall happiness? Or are you willing to sacrifice something different? That's really what I tell people. And then I joke, like, one day I'm going to get my PhD and I'm going to study being Black in America and get it as a DSM diagnosis or something. Because we have some real challenges just being ourselves in our society. Well, I'll be your first study <laughs> Go ahead and get that PhD. <laughs> I, will be, I will be calling you both for sure. <laughs> so this has been just an awesome conversation with both of you, Dana and Dr. Don. I've learned so much in just this short time that we've been together. And I want to thank you both sincerely for sharing your knowledge and expertise as we talk about working while Black. Now we're going to get to the Dear Dr. A segment of the episode, which is when I take a story that was written into me 
from a young Black professional. I put out a call for stories and received some entries. So I'll read the story and just kind of ask for your reactions and some empowerment for this individual. So here we go. Dear Dr. A, I was interviewing for a job in a predominantly white organization. If they hired me, I was going to be the first person of color to join the staff. I interviewed with directors and the CEO and everything seemed to be going well. I was told by the hiring manager that my last interview would be with the managing partner, which was more of a formality. Plus the CEO had already told me that he heard great things about me, so I thought I was in. After doing a video interview with the managing partner, I didn't hear from the hiring manager for a while. A couple of weeks later, I was told the staff was still deliberating. I was confused because I was told the job was pretty much mine. I was hired a month later, but it would be six months into working there that I found out why there was a delay. I learned through the grapevine that the managing partner was the reason for the delay. He didn't want to hire me and was confused as to why the rest of the staff didn't feel the same way. One of the staff mentioned that I had stellar references and he replied, well, you know, black people, they have to get their black friends to be their references so they can get a job. Ironically, he was hired into his position because of his family. It's infuriating that someone who gets into a high ranking position on privilege alone can take away an opportunity because of their own bias and in this case, racist beliefs. Fortunately, some of the staff advocated for me and I was hired, but that isn't the same outcome for many people of color. So once again, this is a story that I feel a lot of us can probably relate to. The thing about this story is I kind of feel happy, oddly enough, that this person learned through the grapevine so that she could know that her managing partner was indeed, if not racist, at least discriminatory and biased. And so I feel happy that she was able to understand that because in a lot of situations, we do just have to rely on trying to figure out if something was a microaggression or what have you. The story should have really infuriated me. It did. It made me happy in an odd way. And I think that's just an unfortunate consequence of working while Black. Like, I get happy when we can learn that we're working with people who are racist. I mean, I'm just going to call it what it is. So, Dr. Don, what kind of feelings does this story evoke in you? And I would hate to think that these things are common in organizations, but what do you see? My reaction was, yet again, this is not a one-off or an outlier. This happens a lot. And in fact, I've seen cases where what is it that you have an ideal candidate or you'll, you'll run into these cases where we can't find Black candidates, but I've even heard quality Black candidates. But then you get a situation like this, stellar references, stellar interviews, you go through the process, you've done everything you needed to do. And then there is a delay. So my reaction is, yet again, I am happy that the person found out because if for no other reason, I think one of the worst things is if you're in the workplace and you're working with people and you don't know what they're saying behind your back or what they're doing. And it doesn't mean that you can't work with that person. It just means that you know what you're dealing with and you know who you're dealing with. Right. So, and I think that's important. I've had cases where Things have been shared with me in confidence. And even though I still remain extremely professional and was able to carry out the work, it opened my eyes to what I was dealing with. And so when I I hear this story, I'm hopeful that they will be able to continue, you know, working and having success in this company. But at the same time, it's just yet again, it's not an isolated incident. This kind of thing happens all the time. Yet again, it's a sad reality, but like you said, one that's not a one-off. So. Dana? I tend to agree yet again, but I guess the faith in me says we are put into some of the challenging situations that we're in to learn something and to grow. It's good to know who you're dealing with as long as you are not compromising your ethics, your values, doing anything illegal. You are going to be given everything that you need in that situation in order to succeed and to achieve what you were put there to achieve. A lot of the times, the stepping stones, we don't even realize that's what it is. And we get something from these difficult situations. So I remember being in a supervisory position. It was my first time being a supervisor. 
And what I didn't know walking into the position is that one of the people I was supervising was up for the position. And so this was an all black staff, all woman staff. So I thought this was going to be easy. And it wasn't because one of my staff was up for my position and did not take it for a lot of other reasons. I was challenged to lead and to grow someone who resented just the mere fact that I was in the job that I was in. And she and I had every reason to want to support each other, being that we were both Black and we were both women. And so I took that opportunity and made it a stepping stone. No, I didn't want to stay in that company forever. No, I didn't want to stay in that position forever. But as long as I wasn't compromising myself, I was going to take every opportunity to learn from it and grow from it and use it for what would bring me to the next thing. And we can't often see that walking in. So we do have to be brave. We do have to be tough, but we also have to have our support system, our self-care strategies. We have to do all those things that our mental health professionals say, because that's what gets us through, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think what you were saying earlier about having to decide what you're willing to sacrifice or put up with probably was really coming into play in this story as well, because I'm just going to be real. If I went to an organization and saw that I was going to be the only Black person in that organization at a given time, that would have been enough for me to just be like, all right, peace, like I'm good, love, enjoy. (laughs) But for this person, it was important for whatever reason for her to go after this opportunity. And I think another point in this story that we hadn't discussed was, I don't want to call them silent heroes because really they were just doing what they were supposed to do. She was clearly qualified for the position, but there is an episode during the season where we'll talk about allyship in the workplace. And I just am thankful that she had people advocating for her and was able to quiet that voice that could have been a lot louder that was trying to keep her out of the position just because she was Black. This has been awesome, like I said before. Is there any last thing, Dr. Don or Dana, that you would like to leave with listeners before we conclude for the day? I just want to encourage the listeners to understand that while we may be few in some situations, and both of you actually have already alluded to this, we're there for a reason. We're on this journey for a reason. And so I encourage people to stay focused and stay prayerful, as my grandmother would say, (laughs) and really identify what it is that, what's your why, is what I would say. Yeah. You can identify what your why is, and that may be inconsistent for other people. It will serve you in such a tremendous way. I'm a living testimony of that. There is no barrier. You are your barrier, but you have to know your why. And I think if the listeners can really come in tune with, what's my why? will allow them to understand how they need to navigate their unique journey. I also always say, and I like to leave everybody with this, the process is the prize. Sometimes we want to bypass the process, but it's so invaluable if we go through the process, learn the lessons as both of you have already stated. And some of those lessons will be hard, but it's necessary for where you're going. I'll end with that. I think that will encourage people There's life on the other end. You know, you don't necessarily have to get a doctorate, but whatever it is that you're doing with your career, there's always alternative paths and there's other things you can do on the other side to stay focused, know your why, and really whatever you believe in, I'm saying prayerful because that's my faith, but whatever you believe in, really get in tune with that and that will guide your path. I definitely agree with Dr. Don. When you know your why, you focus on the why and the how falls right into place. I would also say it is not our collective responsibility as Black people to make these spaces okay for others. It's our responsibility to make them okay for ourselves and for our community. So we should be supporting each other. We should be mentoring each other. We should be uplifting each other and holding each other down in these spaces. And outside of these spaces, the professional spaces as well. And lastly, all of the things that we talked about today, it's incredibly stressful. Stereotyping, marginalization, microaggressions, all of it is stressful. And so we really just have to be managing our mental health through it, our physical health through it, 
when we talk about holistic, we talk about the collective self, our entire well-being needs to be cared for. So we have to take care of that within ourselves and each other. Well, I just have two words for this conversation. Wow. And yes, so much yes, Dr. Don and Dana, you two have just been incredible. It's been a pleasure having you in the conference room. I know this conversation is going to bless a lot of lives. I wish I could talk to you all day long and keep you in here as hostages, but I know we all have lives outside of the conference room. So for now, it's a goodbye, and I'll see you on the outside.